Hello, everybody. How are you? Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Donut Hour podcast, episode 12. I'm Brad Henshaw. How's it going? So on the podcast is my friend Michael Crook, who is a retired Indianapolis police homicide detective. And most recently, he retired as the police chief for the Cumberland Police Department. He has 50 years, that's right, 50 years of police experience, 22 of those as a homicide detective, which also includes about 15 years as a police chief. So this is going to be a two-part episode, mostly because the file was too large for me to upload, and I'm not tech-savvy enough to compress the file down any further. So... When I started this podcast, I wanted to talk about things that were non-law enforcement related. I wanted to be silly and give other people an opportunity who live in Indiana to talk about whatever they're involved with, the cool happenings in their life, people from the arts community, people that are local business owners. And I'm still going to do that. That's the plan. I'm going to be silly. And I didn't necessarily want to talk about law enforcement because I live it. I mean, I live it. And I need a distraction from it. I also don't want to misrepresent the agency that I work for by saying something foolish. This is why I have a disclaimer at the end of my podcast. I don't know if it helps, but I have it. But because I'm in law enforcement, I've been very fortunate to know a lot of amazing people who've done incredible things with their lives. People who have gained, or people who have had positive impacts in their community, people who have had positive impacts in other people's lives. So for me not to share their stories, share their experiences, the knowledge they've obtained over a lifetime because I'm afraid to talk about being a cop on a podcast, well, I think that would be a missed opportunity and I think that would be a shame. So if you're in law enforcement, I think that you'll enjoy this and you'll be able to learn something from it. You'll be able to get something from it. If you're not, well, it's an opportunity to hear the perspective of someone who's dedicated their life to service. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that you do too. So without further ado, Michael Crook. All right, I am sitting at his table, at his dining room table, <laughs> at his house. Uh, Michael Crook, retired IPD homicide detective and retired chief of the Cumberland Police Department. Sir, thank you very, very much for doing this and being here. And Well, obviously it's your house, so thank you for being <laughs> thank here. Thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, this is going to be a lot about um, law enforcement and your career and, and leadership and your roles in leadership. So we'll just, we'll just dive right into it. Why... Why be a police officer? What interests you in law enforcement? Well, frankly, uh, my father was a police officer, and my early memories is as far back as I can remember, somewhere after 1949 or so. Um, I remember being in the living room, crawling around and playing with toys and stuff, and him coming home in his uniform, and um, he had on the big black motorcycle boots because he rode sickles sure. for ten and a half years. Wow. And I thought, man, this is pretty neat. And really um, became really interested at a very young age and just stayed with us and learned more and more. And, uh, you know, I guess um, Dad was able to uh, share a lot of stuff with me um, with regards to 
you know, he ended up being a detective and so forth. So I was able to pick up little things, and I got a you know a tour of the the PD when the city county building uh, opened up and the police department moved in there, and thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So that's what actually prompted it, and um, all I uh, ever wanted to do was just run run a district car. That was it. Yeah. So you you eventually then ended up as as a homicide detective, and then how do you yeah. go from just wanting to be uh, a district car a, a beat officer who runs the road to to homicide? What what clicked or made you want to go that far? Well, what happened was friends of mine who. I work side by side with, they all ended up going to the vice unit. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we were classmates and they wanted me to go to vice too. So I, I went, I was able to get detailed to the vice unit. I was there for about six months. And every month they would, uh, that I was there, it was one month at a time and they would extend it for another month. And they were getting ready to actually make some promotions and stuff. And um, the people that had been serving that vice unit were, some of them were not all higher on the list than I was. And so they wanted uh, to wait until they made the promotions and then bring me in. Okay. And so um, at the time, they weren't real talkative about what the plan was, Um I would have uh, probably done that, but what happened was they sent me back to the street for a month, and uh, then I got the phone call, well, you can come to Vice now, and I thought, no, I'm happy where I'm at, and I'm just going to stay, and so um, I wasn't uh, mad or anything, but I just looked at it as maybe I wasn't supposed to go there, and Mm -hmm. I'll stay right where I'm at, because I loved it, and... uh, I don't know um, how much time went by, but I got a call to go to the deputy chief's office at that time, chief of detectives, which was Jack Cotty, and he said, hey, um, I feel like I want to offer you something, and I think it was a kind of a roundabout way of thanks for not making a big deal about all this, Right. and how would you like to go to the robbery unit? And I said, yeah be happy to. So I went to robbery and I was there and I, I firmly believe that that's probably one of the best jobs you could ever have in there because you can really, you can work hard, um, but you don't get stuck with things sometimes where, like you do in homicide. So anyway, I was uh, at an FOP conference in 80, I believe it was 82, 81, 82, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I got a phone call uh, from um, somebody, the secretary in the, the robbery unit called and said, hey, wanted to know that your check is being sent with one of the guys that's flying out to Arizona tomorrow, mm-hmm. so you'll have your paycheck delivered to you. And by the way, you were moved to homicide. And uh, I thought, well, that's pretty unusual, so... When I got back, I went in and talked to Captain Foley at that time, who was over both. And Foley said, well, I, I know you'd indicated you might be interested in it uh, way back, and he didn't really want to have interviews and all that, so he had the 
the authority to move a make a lateral move from robbery to homicide. Mm-hmm. And so he said, why don't, uh, why don't you try it for six months and see how you like it? Well, there wasn't, for whatever reason, we just didn't have much going on. So there was a lot of nights that we just weren't doing much. And then all of a sudden, the first murder that I ended up having was... Um, a guy by the name of Michael Pack and his girlfriend, and they had their three-year-old kid with them, was uh, shot at Washington Park. And this ended up being a uh, death penalty case later on. And uh, so the guys that were doing it, uh, it was one of those where you just, you know, uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, whatever, and, mm-hmm. and we're, we're going on this trail, and it lasted about... Oh, two weeks to get everybody identified and, and put them in jail. Mm-hmm. But it was a really a very horrific uh, scene because the suspects in this just walked up to the window and shot him in the chest point blank. The girl was taken out of the car and uh, made to have sex with these guys, stuck a shotgun up her uh, anally and vaginally. Uh, of course, uh, raped her, and then I remember... They made her sit in a puddle of water, and it was raining. It rained every day, it seemed like, for a week, and wash herself off so they could have sex with her again. Jesus. And um, I thought, well, how, how does this happen that we go from, you know, absolutely, you know, nothing, um, and, and then into this horrific case that, that went on and on and on for, it seemed like, forever. And it took a lot of coordination, and it was really after that, Captain asked me, he says, well, you've done your six months now. Do you want to go back to robbery or you want to stay? And I thought, well, I don't expect every case to be like this, obviously, and I hope not. But uh, I stayed, and 22 years later, ended up, you know, retiring from that branch. As a, as a sergeant, were you, you yeah. as a sergeant in that branch? Yeah. So... 22 years in homicide, and that, and that first homicide that you're um, investigating, just this horrific incident, and they're all horrific, but this yeah, yeah. specifically is, is terrible. Uh, what, what does that do to your, I guess, your psyche um, going into it, just, your just mentality? Did it change from when you were a, a beat cop or when you are in robbery? Did, was there a switch flipped that um, for you, or not really? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, I'd been in robbery for a while. And, of course, um, you know, one of the things I, I always talk about, is, I think there was a um, a guy by the name of uh, Dr. George Kirkham who wrote one of the early books about writing with police and being police and all that. And Dr. Kirkham says, you know, being a beat cop, you have uh, uh, hours and hours of monotony broken by moments of stark terror. Right. And um, that was really, you know, I, I kind of took that uh, with me into that uh, homicide where we'll go hours and hours and hours without necessarily having call after call after call. But then when it happens, you, you know you shift into gears and you go. As a beat officer, though, um, and, and robbery detective both, I always tried to follow through and um, with with things even... You get into a mentality as a as a beat officer, and not to kick anybody in the butt about it, but you take so many reports that you get 
you know, sometimes you get concerned about, I got a report pending on the screen now, I better hurry and get that done, and you don't take time to actually follow through. Because I wonder and uh, how many times uh, initial investigators, that's what you are mm-hmm. as a road officer, your yeah. initial investigator, yeah. I don't care how you, what you call it, right. how many times you could actually solve something if you took the extra steps. Bearing in mind that I totally understand that you've got one thing hanging on that, that pending screen, and you're forced a lot of times to go from one call to the next. I get that. I understand that. But, you know, think what it would be like if everybody had to do their own, and yeah. then you were judged on how your, how your cases are going at that point. Right. And then the other thing, too, is I think that um, uh, as a district officer, and this is one of the things I always tell people in... Um, the interview schools, the detective schools, is that you have to realize that everybody that you come into contact with, whether you like them or don't, and this is as a street officer, whether they're working in the village pantry or speedway station or they hang out there or they come in there, every one of those people is a future source of information for you. And um, so it, it really floors me sometimes um, when you can, uh, as an example, you have an officer that writes 600 tickets a year and doesn't write everybody he stops. Mm-hmm. How many of the people that he wrote tickets to or encountered does he use or, you know, do they, right. is he developing sources of information for himself? And that was one thing, um, you know, when I became a detective, I had Rome of the City, obviously. And um, I always made a point to go to the old haunts, you know, and and hang out a little bit in the, the different restaurants and stuff, just to maintain these this information flow, which, uh, you know, it, it benefits. <laughs> it benefits a lot. But here again, I understand, you know, with the demands of radio calls today, you can't, you're not always able to do that. Yeah, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um... Uh, even my transition from leaving a, a smaller police department to going to a larger one, uh, whereas where I was on the smaller one, I was able to take my time a little bit because the the run load wasn't uh, wasn't as heavy, wasn't as thick. Right. And <clears> so and then, but and, you, and you've told me that before. And for listeners, uh, Chief Crook here used to be my boss. He was uh, he was uh, my chief uh, for for a little while. And so I've tried to keep that mindset, but yeah, it, it's a balancing act, uh, and, and we're talking shop here, so uh, police officers that are listening to this, um, l- let me ask you this, um, <laughs> as, as, a, as a detective, and as, especially as, as a homicide detective, what are you looking for when a district officer, what do you want a district officer to do when they arrive at a crime scene, specifically where there's a homicide? The the critical thing is, you know, it's it's textbook. You make the scene safe, and if there's first aid to be rendered, do that. And once that's done, start securing that scene, put up the tape, and and uh, separate and hold these witnesses, yeah. Yeah. you know, if yeah. you can, and that becomes critical. And also, um, you know, uh, along with that is uh, probably... Um, 
the the one of the the questions that I've always had to answer in court. And if it isn't me, and you're going to to court on a case with me, somebody will ask you from the defense who put up the crime scene tape. It's always a question: who did it? And most of the time, you don't know because you're in a hurry. So I always tried to document that one of the first things when I arrived uh, because you, I already knew I was going to be asked that. Right. And if you don't know the answer to that, then they'll harp on, defense attorneys may harp on that as a, well, they don't even know who was first here. They don't even know who put up the crime scene right. tape and it, stuff it, like that. It sets so. the tone. And then if they can yeah. find something that immediately set the tone, then, yeah, yeah they're going to they're gonna pick it up. It's funny, and I, I did write this in a, somewhere once. Let me probably read it again in the future. But I've had two crime scenes in my career that were absolutely pristine. Ironically, done by the same guy who was the first officer on both of them. His name is Tom Lynn. He, is, he went on to become one of the super homicide detectives. He's now retired, and he works for the U.S. District Attorney. Mm-hmm. And um, he broke his arm during recruit training and couldn't graduate and go to FTO with everybody else. So he ended up spending time in a, a homicide office riding with us. And I think that really carried over to when he did get to the street on the importance of securing that scene and all that. <coughs> but he did. He gave me two scenes where the only person that went in was him. He checked, make sure the perpetrator wasn't on the scene, and then he stood at the doorway and didn't let anybody else go in until we got there. And that, you know, that's, to me, um, really stands out and and I brag about him all the time. I just did a class a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned that to the whole whole class. Ironically, though, I've had two scenes that were really uh, control was lost immediately, and I mean fast. And those, both of those scenes were done by a lieutenant. Ironically, <laughs> the same lieutenant. And uh, man. So for, for uh, people that are listening to this that aren't police officers, why is it so important to have that crime scene secure? Or- um, it is uh, important because if you allow people to walk in and out, even though they have a good purpose maybe for being there, such right. as uh, uh, fire to firemen and stuff like that, the majority of them are only going in to look at the body. Right, right. I mean... And they come out, and then they can tell their friends what they've seen that right, night. That's right. the that's what really is the psyche behind all that. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that you cannot enter a scene or leave it without moving, touching something. And um, I have I have, I show pictures to where I've had uniform officers on cases recover a weapon, and you think, man, that's good, they got the weapon. And then you look at it, and They've unloaded it, mm-hmm. and then they've taken every shell out of the magazine, and it's all laying there. And it's like, why did you do this? You know, I can't imagine why, you know. I had another case one time where we looked inside, looked outside. The officer was on the front porch talking to me, and I'm taking my notes and all that. 
And we looked out, and we had the murder weapon laying on his dashboard with his interior light on. You could clearly see a handgun and the suspect uncuffed in his back seat. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that makes you pucker a little bit. So it's like, uh, you know, kind of the, I guess the role of the, uh, of the, the homicide detective is to, you're the guy that's gathering all this information and try to make it all work and put it together in some kind of logical sequence that you can present it to prosecutor, judge, jury. Sure. And I want to go back, too, about my uh, lieutenant story because I omitted something that's very important. Um, as I said, I you know there was, it was odd that we had lieutenant being the one that, that messed this up, and I've never uh, divulged this individual's uh, name, of course, but I do think that... Uh, when they look at police fire games, I've always been a proponent that they should have a shell-kicking contest for the rank of lieutenant or higher. And it just should be an automatic because uh, we've got some people that can really qualify for that. And I think we got a gold medal winner on yeah, our hands. Well, you know, it, it, yeah. has, it hasn't changed the day. It's, <laughs> it, it, still, it still happens. Um, you, <laughs> you know... Um, one of the first homicide classes I ever went to, and and you don't know what this is probably a Polaroid camera. I'm not familiar. I'm, just, I'm, I'm old enough well, to know. I'm, okay, most people don't know <laughs> yeah, what that yeah. is. But uh, I'll never forget this guy. You know, he's a New York cop, and he comes in. He's teaching this class, and he goes, "We all need to get Polaroid cameras. So when the brass shows up, you have somebody take pictures of the deceased in the crime scene, and then bring your Polaroid out." And give it to them, and they won't go in the house. True. I thought, shit, that's a great that's idea. Brilliant. I bought a Polaroid and uh, had somebody, you know, take pictures and go over and give them to the deputy chief as he's arriving. And I'm thinking, hey, man, I've yeah. done a hell of a job here. <laughs> the chief comes over and hands me, hey, this is really a good idea. I'm going to go on in and look. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, shit, he missed the point on that one, but... You can't win them all. You can't. I've I've been able to, and I'm gonna also because I'm still active. Say no names, <laughs> but where I where I've been described on the homicide, and I'm making mm. notes of who's entering the crime scene and this, that, and the other for it. And and at the edge of the tape, and had brass walk up and be like, "Hey, before you come in, let me get your name and ID number real quick for you know." And yeah. I'll always drop for court and. That usually stops them and keeps them from sometimes, sometimes, right. sometimes not. But yeah, that's that's brilliant. Maybe uh, just God forbid I, it, it doesn't happen again, but you know it will. Um, I'm going to purchase a Polaroid camera, and the next homicide <laughs> detective I see, I'm going to say, "This is here. Just trust me." Just. Well, good luck getting film for it after you buy it. <laughs> It'll be more expensive than the camera. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I don't even know if you can get film for that. But. I, I have. I have no idea. I'm sure some retro store somewhere, maybe, maybe not. Something that I've I've always found fascinating with homicide detectives and 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 the job itself is is so incredibly demanding. And I mean, it's your life. It's it's why why you're in that position. That's it consumes you. How do you how did you balance? being a homicide detective and all the demands that that had and having a family. How 
Well, I don't think I balanced it very well, in all honesty. Um, I'm, uh, you know, having uh, uh, Jane took care of the girls as they were growing up. I knew what events to be at and mm -hmm. always, you know, uh, would arrange time to, you know, most of the time you can, with proper planning and a good team, uh, you know, my, my squad of detectives, they, I just, I never had a bad group. Uh, but anyhow, so you really have to uh, do a lot of planning, and it's a lot on her. I know when my kids were playing softball, and I was coaching softball, um, I mean, sometimes things would get a little tricky um, on the schedule, but I, I was able to make them all, and uh, it just takes a, a really good team. And ironically, um, during the time I I didn't realize what a great group I had on my squad. I didn't realize it at the time. Now, in my defense, I had people above me that, um, you know, were putting pressure on me to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do yeah. and, and stuff yeah, like that. Sure. Um, but I worried about them, and I worried about them from the, not from the duty point, but when they got off duty, and, you know, I know a couple of them like to go uh, have a cocktail or something, and I worried about that, which I also know that technically I wouldn't be responsible for their conduct. However, I would be. <laughs> yeah. In some fashion, it yeah. would still come around. I worried about that. I got them all together recently. And I apologized to them for being a, uh, a bad supervisor. I said, I wish I, if I knew now what I, you know, if I knew then what I knew now, uh, I would have been a much better supervisor for you guys. Because well, what do you mean by that? Because, I, mean, I mean, are you just being really damn hard on yourself? Or? Probably, but I worried about them. And I, I mean, there was, um, there's, there's things I really, you know, can't get into about sure. some of the activities and sure. stuff, but... I was just constantly hammered about, you know, keeping them in line, but they it wasn't while they were working, it was in their off-duty stuff and and they really didn't do anything bad. They I mean, they never got they never uh, as far as I know got um, they never got arrested for drunk driving and things of that nature. I I really think they just enjoyed hanging out together and right. playing golf or whatever they were doing and and uh but I couldn't, uh, I always felt responsible for them. And so that's, and I've told them about it too. I mean, it is, you know, it, it was just that way. Sure. And I wanted to make it clear to them that I didn't appreciate what I had at that particular time. I think that's human nature. I, I think that because yeah. you, you, you just, you don't know what you have until it's gone and then you, you've taken it for granted. And, it's, and, yeah. and, and I think that can be said for a, a lot of things in, in life. And I think it's just because you, you just don't know. You, you just don't know until it's right. gone. Um, Here's another. This is another kind of a point to things on, on how they work. But uh, um, I had a murder and still unsolved. It happened on April the 8th of 1992. It's uh, become the I-70 cases yeah. across. Yeah. And it's yeah. still I still participate in meetings and stuff on that. It's a very well-known case, yeah. yeah. And uh, 
God, I'd love to. I think what's going to happen on that is the day I die, the guy's going to come forward and <laughs> surrender himself. I think he's out waiting me. Well, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about what, what happened with the I-70 murders. Okay. Um, well, the first victim in this was Susan Fuldauer, and she was 26 years old, manager of the shoeless, uh, shoe, uh, Payless Shoe Source, 7200 block of Pendleton Pike. And... Uh, I'll go through these real quickly, but from there, our next victim is in Wichita at uh, what was called Sir Knight's Tuxedo and uh, Bridal Shop. There were two victims there. Um, From there, the subject goes back to Terre Haute, where he kills a guy by the name of Michael McGowan, who was working at Sylvia's Ceramic Shop, a shop owned by his mother, and it was about six blocks north of 70 on I-44, I believe, runs north and south there. So from there then, he goes to uh, St. Charles, Missouri, where he kills uh, Nancy Kitzmiller, uh, working at Boot Village. And then from there to Raytown, Missouri, and the victim there, Sarah Blessing, uh, she was working on what's called uh, House of Many Colors, and they sold um, organic seasonings and uh, uh, kind of different uh, herbs and things like that. So all these are connected uh, by ballistics. Um, The manner in which this suspect would go in, he would do minimal surveillance, go in, able to get his victim to the back, and uh, once he gets him in the back room, shoots him at the base of the skull, and they go down and, and that's it. Um, so that was the first series and we, we have some other cases where in Texas, Houston, uh, Arlington and Fort Worth that could be connected. But, uh, anyway, so, um, af- pretty much after, uh, September of 93, there's no more activity with this guy. And, uh, St. Charles, Missouri, uh, took took the bull by the horns, really took the lead on this uh, for all of us, uh, smaller departments. And they, uh, they put a war room together that has all of the files from everybody. And there, there was a lot of, um, of activity that had to be really coordinated uh, because of the different jurisdictions. Because if we did make an arrest, who who was going to prosecute it? Right. And how are you going to have? Right. How many people from Indianapolis are going to have to go to another city or state? Right. To testify. So you had to get all of your evidence. Basically, you know, like the Marion County Crime Lab did ours, uh, and eventually, uh, we all had to bring our evidence and get it together under one roof, and let the FBI do an analysis on things that we'd already done so that if the day ever comes, you'll just be using one person to come in there and testify, you know, about the physical evidence and stuff. If that were, you know, if we would end up charging in multiple states, which I don't, I don't think that that would ever be the case really, but anyhow. So, uh, and when I was talking about, uh, you know, 
my supervisors being, you know, kind of watching what I'm doing kind of a thing. This is a funny one. Uh, we had um, three detectives. Oh, in the 7200 block of Pendleton Pike at that time, you had the Payless, and next door to it, going east, is the Speedway Station. And then uh, on the west side of it was, um, I think it's Babes. Okay, yeah, the, the strip club there. You would be much more familiar with that than I. <laughs> I, I can't speak to that on air here. Okay. I think it was Babes. And I had, I had over it. Now, Babes doesn't open until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? The, the murder took place at 1.20 in the afternoon. And uh, anyway, there was overtime slip by three detectives who had uh, put in a substantial amount of time interviewing potential witness, looking for witnesses in the bar. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it was like uh, I was questioned about that. Why th- this bar isn't open? Why are, these, why are you approving these overtime slips for all these guys with this many hours on a business that's not even open? And I was like, well, you know, we want to be thorough. Yes. And you never know. I mean, somebody could have been there cleaning up or something. And anyway, and, and then kind of, I'll never forget it, but the, uh, the conversation ended with, and I got to back up here to explain this, but we have a refrigerator in the homicide office. And when you, you, once a month or so, we'd go stock it up with drinks and stuff, non-alcoholic beverages. And, uh, Everybody would shoot in 50 cents or a buck or however you wanted to pay and put it in a little coffee cup inside the refrigerator. And the the end of the conversation about the overtime was not only did they do all this overtime, but do you realize all the $1 bills are missing from the refrigerator? (laughs) And I'm like, I can't win. Oh, man. I couldn't win on this one. So... The one dollar bills were replenished, though. Well, so, that's good. And yeah, and, there's and, there's not much you can say other than just kind yeah. of shake your head and. You know, move yeah, on. but in this uh, in this uh, particular thing, um, this case, uh, the um, I I always on April the eighth or day before after that week, call the victim's su- uh, sister Susan, and tell her. You know, hey, I'm still working on this. I I just recently talked to her, obviously, um, in April, and told her that you know I was getting ready to to uh, slow down and retire, but I already have people in line that are very familiar with what's going on, and we're not. I'm still going to be involved in it, and she appreciated that, and she's moved. Um, after her sister was killed, she ended up going to. Texas and she lived I think in Dallas for a long time and then uh, she recently moved back to Indianapolis so we're probably going to be meeting here pretty soon for lunch or something but it's important you know to stay in touch with the families as much as you can and you know that's another thing too Michael Pack who was the first victim in my Washington Park murder Mm -hmm. his brother ended up I had, uh, he was a victim in a shooting in which two people were murdered in his home and he was able to get away. And that was like 15 years later. Um, So it's ironic, you know, that I told Mrs. Pack here, you know, here I am again, here you are again. You know, I had the death of your first son and now this one who survived. Yeah, yeah. How does that, 
how do you not then because you're you're in contact with uh, victims' families and as, and and then you've been involved in the I seventy murder investigation since nineteen ninety ninety two. How do you? Well, I guess do you get emotionally involved in some of these cases, and then if so, you know how do you step because because that could be a dangerous road getting getting emotionally involved in a case. So where do you kind of draw the line with that? How does how do you? Well, I don't. I you know it's. Um... Boy, I'll tell you, you become calloused, I think. Yeah. And, and um, I wonder sometimes, you know, um, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I mean, I, but I think everybody really, you, you're able to separate that. Somehow you're able to separate it. And um, I've never, um, I can't say I've never gotten emotional uh, investigating deaths of police officers is, is yeah. a humdinger, and yeah. especially yeah. Um, I worked uh, alongside of Beach Grove PD with the death of uh, Bill Tony down there, and that was uh, that was a very emotional one because uh, of his uh, daughters and so forth. But that's a but anyway. Uh, then there's another one where um, I've I had uh, another detective on my shift had a murder and, and a guy and the nine-year-old son was in the back seat and just dodged bullets basically while the dad was being shot up. The mother knows exactly who the killer is, but the killer was more able to um, provide dope. And so... There was no cooperation. Wow. Certainly feel bad about that, that. But there's also, you know, a limit to what you can do. Yeah. So now in the Bill Tony case, um, boy, I'll tell you that was uh, um, to. Uh, it's ironic, but I really maintained a great relationship and friendship with all the investigators. And it's funny, too, because uh, ironically, I was just talking to Captain Bob Mercury yesterday or the day before. He was just a detective down there at the time. And uh, Dave Heiniger, who was the lead detective on it, is um, in charge of uh, Hancock County Regional Hospital Security. So I'm able to talk with him frequently. And uh, so, you you know, I remember walking into the Beach Grove Station, and that's a small department, too. Right. And it's, uh, they had lost their officer, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but there were people there that had responsibilities, but they were walking. Just They would just walk up and down the hallway, and um, it was readily identifiable, identifiable to me. They were in the state of shock, and um, I remember um, there were some things said to me by the, the prosecutor at that time about my involvement and just and I, I remember saying I, I can't be the lead on this this is their guy and they need to be the one sitting at the table when this goes to trial which it eventually did and uh, anyway uh, so all all I did was uh, uh, su- support them and provide them with a path to follow, a roadmap of what needed to be done and how I think they should do it. They, uh, 
I actually uh, ended up doing the interview with Ben Ritchie, who was the one that, that killed Bill Tony. And this guy was the one that had uh, Bill's car number tattooed on his neck, 37, and then um, realized that was probably a dumb move, so he then put a one in there, making it the area code, mm -hmm. trying to blow it off that way. He made a, a really horrifically uh, horrific statements to Bill Tony's wife during the trial, too. And, uh, you know, I'm always sitting in the chair on a, on a death penalty case. And I'm not, I've had several, let's just say that. Um, one of the more, more interesting is a guy by the name of Howard Allen, too. With, that's another thing. But anyway, I'm, I'm waiting for, um, for uh, Ben Ritchie to show me some kind of signs here of humbleness or any something. Any sort of remorse or anything. And it never happened. And he, he, ref he was a complete jerk during the trial and all that. And uh, Joel Hand and Scott Newman prosecuted that one. Um, I definitely come away with a lot of respect for both of those guys. And man, they they humped it with us. I mean, they were they were there hours and hours before and after, just like we were. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. anyway, so um, kind of uh, keeping in mind Bill Tony's daughters, mm -hmm. both young, his wife Dina, um, she remarried a couple of years ago, and I can't remember the exact date, but we did put up the uh, memorial that yeah, I was there for that yeah okay yeah and um, his daughters were there yep. for that yeah yeah and it was at that time too that I had uh, I had gotten all my files together with all the the uh, files from Bob Mercury and uh, and uh, Dave Heininger and took them up to Wolf Technologies and they helped uh, we made um, a um, nice uh, album mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the daughters with all the newspaper clippings and stuff like that. And it was uh, actually had some volunteers. I can't remember exactly what organization it was, but I want to say ladies from like FOP or something that helped put this together uh, to give to the girls. So, I mean, they were so young, they didn't know anything. You know, didn't hardly remember their dad. So that that to me was a, a big deal, getting that done. And and I'm really appreciative to Wolf Technologies up there because uh, it's on the north side somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, Allison Bill Road, um, because they didn't charge me a dime for all they did. Oh, wow. Nice. So, nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that and that's important to yeah. memorialize him as well for, for his daughters. And I remember during that time, because um, I was winding down um, my time with uh, uh, at Cumberland PD before I before I moved on to where I'm at now, and I had just a very small role in, in helping you with that, yeah. and just and just looking over it and um, and just thinking to myself, you know, I'm I, I wasn't a dad then, I am now, but just just being overwhelmed with with emotion, and I and I didn't know him, um, right? But, but you know, what what a powerful. A sediment that that you provided to the family that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool 
Well, I definitely, I teared up walking through the, going by his casket. I had my son with me. It was the first time that he had, I, I, I didn't make him go. He volunteered to go to mm-hmm. see what it was about. Anyway, so he went with me, and it was uh, it was really emotional. And I know that uh, I remember uh, Judge uh, Sheila Carlisle and Bob Altice were sitting together, and I know uh, they were crying, and I was crying, and it was pretty emotional the whole whole thing. But uh, it's um, you know uh, uh, to divert. You know, we had an officer kill himself at our department. Yeah. And yeah. so I, when you look at what happened to Bill Tony, total different circumstances, mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. But that really messes up your your department as far as, uh, you know, all the stress and, and the things that, that everybody's thinking. And, you know, um, with our situation, obviously, um, I just never thought I've I've investigated a number of police officer suicides Mm -hmm. a lot of them and I never never really got the impact of it until we had it at Cumberland yeah and how I mean you know I had people that couldn't come in the building for six months they couldn't come in the building so what do you do yeah (laughs) I told them I don't care I'll bring the mail to them if they don't have to set foot in the building that's fine. Yeah. Especially if you shared an office with him or roommates or whatever. We'll get through it. But boy. No, it, it was a rough time. It was a rough yeah. time. And I and I and I think about it often. And I think about and another thing and another reason why I, I wanna do this and have this podcast and and I've spoke with a with a mental health <laughs> uh, mental health specialist before. but you know everything that, a, that an officer goes to a first responder not just police yeah. but fire ems everybody just the constant trauma that you're exposed to and then and then whatever else is someone you add that on to whatever else they're going through in, the, in their personal life and things have changed uh the culture's changed in, in the police department now there's more you're more apt to to, to talk about whatever you're going through i've um one of my uh, uh partners that i work with his dad was involved in a in a fatal shooting of a suspect uh years ago and was working the very next day mm-hmm. without talking to anybody yeah. he was just expected to show up to work right and then <coughs> now not only for you know investigative purposes but just uh let that individual individual sort through it what have you seen through the years change with uh, first responders, police specifically, and mental health uh, that's happened for the good? And do you have any recommendations going forward? Well, I think that um, the the current way that police action shootings are handled, critical incidents with IMPD, is definitely um, the way that that they should be done. Uh, Smaller departments, though, they definitely have a handful of, uh, you know, problems in, in trying to to figure out the logistics of how to investigate something without having your department involved in it. Right, right. So that that becomes uh, where you really have to depend on support from the other agencies. Originally, though, um, the critical incident response team, or the CERT team, uh, was um, the first shooting 
that occurred where that cert team was actually used happened at the Holiday Inn at 21st and Shadeland. And uh, um, it, the, what had happened at that time was, or before that, was whatever investigator would get the case, they'd, they'd be up for the next murder, basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would get that. The creation of the CERT team um, helped to divide up the responsibilities and to make sure that uh, with extra training, everybody had a job to do on that, but you also had to be flexible to do other jobs within that. And what I mean by that is you had um, somebody would go to the hospital, and if you go to the hospital, you're usually going to have to try to interview two people if the guy hasn't died and he's a suspect, you got to try to, you know, interview him. Also, if you have an officer that's been injured or other people, you've got to try to interview them. And at the same time, while you're there, you got to be, uh, you know, cognitive of what's evidence here, which is usually everything. And then you have to have somebody go do interviews and door-to-door interviews and um all this kind of thing. So uh, then you have, you know, um, somebody has to do all your logistics for you. And by that, that's running records, pulling up files, case reports, um, you know. And you pull up a name, you know, Joe Schmo. um, Who has he been associated with? So that leads you to another group. So you can have one person designated to just doing all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got your statements that have to be taken uh, by the officer and so forth and your witness officers and whoever else is around there. And so one of the things that um, the, the creation of the team was not done to, um, to uh, say, you know, this is an elite squad and the rest of you you know, aren't good enough to do it. It was, it was the purpose of it was not for that. It was to um, try to get some kind of routine for those that were going to do it, and also there's some that really didn't want to handle officer-involved stuff. <coughs> so you have to be aware of that. But <coughs> sorry, but what uh, that was the beginning of it. <coughs> they also, also back in that particular time period. The homicide detective did it all. Whoever was going to be responsible for that, taking the statement from the officer, he presented it to the firearms review board, he presented it to the prosecutor, and everybody else. And uh, so that's all changed now, you know, where you have that 72-hour period or whatever before the officer's interviewed to help him uh, establish better recall and so forth. You also have the post-team involvement and things like that. That uh, you've got, you know, the responsibilities are still um, there, but no longer does that that uh, the main investigator have to do Everything. the criminal yeah. criminal and the administrative review on that. So that was those were good changes that that happened toward the end of my career. <coughs> so. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that that uh, that go on. Um, 
behind the scenes that, that people do, do not realize. And I will tell you this too, and I, I really believe this. I used to tell a new guy would come to homicide and they'd say, well, you know, Sarge, what do I need? What equipment do I need? I'd always tell them, go out and buy a good pair of shoes with thick leather soles because you need to walk your butt up and down and canvas and, and all this kind of stuff. Shoe leather was important. Um, and it still is. And I think that um, good note-taking, and, you know, so many people rely on the computer for all your notes. Um, a, a good defense attorney, if you can come in with a notebook, that's impressive to them instead of your printed-out, you know, the incident report. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's much more impressive to have a notebook. Um, but, um, anyway, um, uh, with regard to the notebook, I got to tell you, my, my old partner, Bob Hoke, he would always take his notebooks home and review them before court as he should. And his daughter, uh, Becky one, one time overnight, Bob laid, laid his uh, book on the coffee table uh, in front of the couch, and he had reviewed all his notes, and she decided to color in it and write different things. Oh and the uh, defense attorney uh, <laughs> observed that. And uh, the, the whole time Bob was up there testifying and, and so forth and looking at his notebook, and finally uh, the attorney, which was a guy by the name of Oni Mullen, Ask him, is, is this your notebook, detective? Well, yes, it is. Well, may I see it? <laughs> he went through it, and he never asked. <laughs> he didn't have to because Bob said he was anticipating that, is this your notes, too? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. never happened. Only he didn't front him out, but uh, it was one of the more humorous things. But anyway, good note-taking and, and being able to you know get away from these computers is, is huge right now. Having said all this stuff and, and talking about getting out and talking to people, um, the homicide detectives now are faced with problems that I never had. Such and as? Social media. Yeah. Cell phones. Um, text messages. And when you start looking at the volume of stuff, when you have a person involved, gee, many Christmas. And every time, you know, for every text you send me, I reply. Mm -hmm. They've got to get your phone. They got to get my phone. They got to get, you know, it starts out with a uh, <coughs> uh, what do they call it a uh, order to preserve. That's a search warrant, pretty much by itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you have to get oh, registration information: who's the phone belong to, who's paying the bill, what subscriber. Um, or, you know, what uh, vendor is it? And then they've got to do that for each and every one. And uh, there's, there's information in these, these phone calls and stuff. People can't help it. Texting, you know, hey, I just shot so-and-so in the head. It's pretty cool. But gathering all that is not an easy task. And then the social media aspect of it, is people talking about the social media, who you know, who's doing this and who's doing that. And, uh, you know, by golly, if you do it, if anybody rats on me, I'm coming after you. Right. Uh, so, but I think that, um, 
I think that that kind of forces a, a lot of detectives to get away from getting out and talking to people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you th- this then, because um, as as much as technology progresses and and that's a whole new set of issues, um, police work at its core is still one person talking to yeah. another. And so when you were a sergeant in homicide, it's going to be a two-part question. Um, as, as a sergeant over homicide and as a, as a chief running a department, what did you look for? What qualities did you look for, did you want in a homicide detective? And then as a chief, what qualities did you want out of an officer? Well, for the homicide uh, role, you want somebody that, uh, um, well, Maybe a better way to answer this is explain. I think that you have different kind of detectives. You have people that are telephone detectives, never leave their desk. If it can't be done over the phone, they're not going to do it. And then you have um, people that just like to tell everybody that mm-hmm. they're homicide detectives mm-hmm. and their heart's not into it. So, to, you know, we wanted to. Um, look for people that were going to be a bulldog approach and stick with something and if you get a little bit of a scent try to develop it and that's kind of hard to measure um, and uh, certainly um, uh, I look at over the years uh, where we would have uh, an opening in homicide you'd have 10 15 20 people apply and I think toward the end, if we had one apply, wow, it was they were going to get it. Why was that? The demand. Okay. The the demand, the um, the pressure involved in it. I mean, you know, you certainly don't become a homicide detective to not solve cases. Right. Right. Um, right. So you've got, and and the truth of the matter is. Um, you know, at the end of your eight and a half hours, you go home. Uh, that could never be a sure thing. And uh, if you had plans that next morning to, you know, do something, and, you know, you, a lot of times you always have that, had a contingency. I, I remember you telling me um, in conversations in the past while you were at Homicide that you would have, uh, you know, an s- extra set of clothes and, yeah. and, and ready, ready to not only have an extra set of clothes, but ready to travel at that. Absolutely, yeah. 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 <coughs> that, we had a, for our squad, we had a, I think it was my drawer, a little box in the bottom of my drawer that uh, everybody kicked in some money. And uh, if you... If you dipped into it, say I, I borrowed five dollars out of that, that box till payday, I'd have to put the five plus one. Sure, sure. You yeah, know, yeah, a little yeah. interest. But we had that box because you never know what you might need some cash, so there you go. And uh it would also we would buy uh if anytime you had a police action shooting and you you would always end up with pizzas feeding everybody because mm. you were gonna mm-hmm. be there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, and so forth. But then you also had your snack packs and and uh, things like that. That you know, um, one of the one of the guys I worked with had a, a cans of Vienna sausage, and I'm like, oh, oh my god. god, did you ever take that out of here? Or has it been here the entire <laughs> five years you've been here? It lasts forever. Yeah, 
Oh God, yeah. But you, you know, so you're trying to. There, there's a lot goes into that, but you got to be ready to go and, and just, you know, a lot of times you just go home and shower and come right back. Hey, folks! Thanks for listening to the first part of episode twelve. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Michael Crook. Hey, whatever platform that you're listening on, please uh, subscribe, send a review, give me some feedback. I'm still trying to learn. And hey, don't forget to listen to the second part of this. Thank you so much.